I remember standing next to my desk and hearing footsteps and then hearing a deep, gravelly voice talking to me. This gentleman stopped, talked to me and said, what kind of effing discount maternity wear is that? Referring to my outfit. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. Founders, actors, athletes, chefs, comedians, musicians. Bottom line, these are women who win. So how are they doing it? We're taking you way beyond the bios, looking at their struggles, triumphs, risks, biggest mistakes, and some of the worst advice they've heard along the way. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Today's guest has been called the most powerful woman on Wall Street. She grew up in South Carolina, ran track in school, studied journalism in college and got an MBA, and then went on to run Smith Barney, Merrill Lynch Wealth Management, and City Wealth Management. That was before she was fired, very publicly, twice. And while that setback might have deterred most of us from sticking around the industry, for her, it only sharpened her mission to help women reach their financial goals. So she started an online investment business by women for women called Elevest. Plus, she's sharing her wisdom and life experience in her new and first book, Own It, The Power of Women at Work. Sally Krawcheck, welcome to No Limits. Rebecca, I'm so happy to be here. So in the book, you make the case for instead of the idea that women should behave more like men, Yes. in the workplace to get ahead. Women should behave like women to get ahead. Yes, dang it. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, a lot of the advice has been, and a lot of the advice I got on Wall Street is be more, and this is advice from books. This is advice from my boss. This is advice when we would do the performance reviews. I remember with the performance reviews going through it, is so-and-so decisive? Does so-and-so make their case? Does so-and-so raise their hands for assignments for which they are not ready? Are they confident? I'm like, man, 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 man. These are male characteristics. And so I saw a lot of women conform to that on Wall Street. Uh, we didn't have enough women on Wall Street. And, well, financial crisis, right? So and we can go into it. I, I do believe one of the big causes of the financial crisis was groupthink. Too many people of one type and then those who were diverse – we're, we're really trained to act like that type. So you lost that power of diversity, of questioning, and you got more groupthink. So women have been told, really, first remember, we used to be told to dress like men. We finally got rid of our floppy bows. Then so much of the, of the advice is to adopt those male characteristics. Well, the problem with that, Rebecca, is that one, it, the power of diversity is diversity, not telling people to act like the majority, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting to be something you aren't every day. So we lose women. I can't tell you how many women I've spoken to. So I can't play this role anymore. And the third thing is if we do it, even if we do it successfully, there's backlash. There's research out there that shows that we women are dinged if we're too feminine and we're dinged if we're too masculine. And so we end up walking this very tight, narrow road 
whereby we can't be too hot or too cold. You're smiling because you know it. Uh, well, I'm smiling for two reasons. A, I know this feeling of exhaustion, but B, I hear so much now from so many successful people, CEOs, people who have made it to the top, that it took them a long time to figure it out. But when they started to be 100% themselves, that's when everything started to fire and work for them. Right. And in the time that they were trying to conform, it almost made them boring and not as good. You can right. never play someone else as well as you can play yourself. Look, I think back to when I was at Sanford Bernstein uh, running the research business there, and we were loose. I mean, it was a band of quirks. <laughs> we were a band of quirks, and we celebrated our quirkiness. We celebrated the fact that that analyst, well, he was a taxi driver right before he joined us. And so we, I hate the term, but we brought our whole selves to work. There was no, that's a quirky part of me. That'll stay at home. On the other hand, there have been other places I've worked at where I just didn't get it. I, I remember one company, okay, it's Bank of America, um, <laughs> where, where in my first week, somebody showed up to prep me for the meeting that we were about to have to tell me what I was supposed to say. And I thought, oh, no, oh, no. You, no. Didn't you hire me because I know what oh, I'm saying? Oh, you're prepping me. No, this is not going to end well. I want to get into who Sally Krawcheck is and oh. what drives her. Because that <laughs> I think there's, there's a lot here to talk about. We're going to talk about the business. But you dedicate the top of the book. You dedicate it to your grandma who mm. tore down a lot of walls. Tell me about her. She was awesome. She emigrated from Poland at the age of eight. As the story goes, you know, came through Ellis Island. We found the documentation in a blizzard. Uh, she and her family, I'm not sure this is true, but the way we tell the story, we're like, oh, forget about this. And how, <laughs> what, where can a train ticket get us? How far south can we get? So ended up in Charleston, where she was not a conventional Southern female. She worked every day of her life in my in the family store so she was on the women's side the women's um uh, the women's clothing uh store she had my father at the scandalous age of 41 and she worked into her 80s she was really a badass before we really knew what a badass was she was um sparky she had a great work ethic um and she loved me and i grew up in a family uh, an immediate family of four kids, oldest to youngest, three years and 11 months. That is actually, Rebecca, physically wow. doable. I know. People are like, wait, 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 wait. No twins. Physically doable. And she and I just took to each other. And so having that relationship with that kind of badass woman made me want to go. And it's really interesting. She died when I was, I think, 16 years old. I still miss her. Hmm. What was your first job? My first job, my very first job, was, was probably against the law uh, because my I was filing in my father's office for it was either a dime an hour or twenty five cents an hour, and I'm pretty sure I was in about fourth grade. I might have been in fifth, but it was it was like child labor over there. My first real job was at the store, at the family store, on the floor standing up all day, selling women's clothes, working on commission. That stuff's hard. Sales. Hard. Sales all day long. What made you decide to pursue business school? So the thinking on going to Wall Street actually first, I like to joke it's because my father forbid me from moving to New York. The real reason was because I, I wanted to be a journalist who had something to write about. I thought, I, you know, my first job offer was obituaries. 
I mean, I don't know about that. And you'll appreciate this, Rebecca. I thought, well, I'll go go to Wall Street. I'll learn about business and I'll become a business journalist. And, and I just never – I kept trying to sort of get my way back. And I guess I have with this book eventually, but I never quite made my way back. That was my thinking as well. It was let's mm-hmm. learn something and then I can talk about it as a right. journalist. And also it also allowed me to pay off my student loans a lot faster by well, going to Wall too. Street before right. journalism. That was, there was that too. Which firm did you work with? I worked for uh, Citigroup and oh. I worked for Bank of America. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Zero. <laughs> we had a little bit of right. overlap. There we go. But when you first got to Wall Street, what was your first impression of the place? I was scared. I was scared less. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, on my, I don't know if it was my first day, my second day, my third day, but I remember standing next to my desk. Oh, look, pencils. Oh, my gosh, pads of paper. And smelling cigarette cigar smoke and hearing footsteps and then hearing a deep gravelly voice talking to me this gentleman stopped talked to me and said what kind of effing discount maternity wear is that referring to my outfit and oh what what who and what what automatically went through your head at that time i bet was i need a new outfit it was more oh my gosh i'm not in kansas or north carolina and south carolina anymore People talk to people like that. It's shocking. And that's before I even get to the pictures of the male nether regions that were being put on my Xerox pictures that were being put on my desk. Which you talk about in the book. Oh, which I talk about in the book all and all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the first time I found I'm like, what what is what oh my gosh, (laughs) that's a male nether region. (laughs) It's interesting because when I, I was in the world of finance early two thousands and things had already come up from that point. But there was still a lot of that stuff going on. I couldn't quit because I had to pay rent. I came from a middle-class family. My parents could not afford to pay my rent for me because of all those other kids who were going to college and graduate school and so on. So I didn't say a word to them. And all I thought was, "You're you're not getting me out of here. No way am I going down. What is disappointing, Rebecca, is you talk about it being the case in the early 2000s, you know, and I, I'm i embarrassed to tell you I thought it was better. I didn't know that it was perfect. I thought it was better. Uh, you know, HR is, you know, all over this stuff, all kinds of messages and hotlines and so on. And then this summer, I read in the New York Times there was an op-ed about bro talk on Wall Street. And that kind of talk going on, it, not out in the open any longer, but behind closed doors. And I, I thought it was just really disappointing to hear that. What kept you there for so many years? Well, because I finally found a job I loved. So the next step is I went to business school with the thinking of, let me get out of investment banking. Let me find something that has the analytics, the quantitative. I'd like to write. I like dealing with smart people. I'll go to business school, figure this out. Went to business school, graduated. Recession of 1992, no jobs but investment banking. So back into it I went, and I lasted only another year. I happened to, at the time, be relatively newly married. I became pregnant. I had a baby. And I found myself, Rebecca, at the age of 29 years and 11 months, a stay-at-home mom, and an unhappy stay-at-home mom. And it was only then when I had that break And I kept thinking about what did I like, what did I hate, what did I like, what did I hate, that I had what I like to say, the insight that so many young women have at that age, which is that I wanted to be a sell-side equity research analyst. Because? (laughs) Because what a great job. (laughs) 
first of all, for me, I wanted individual responsibility. I know a lot of people, I want to say, I want to work on teams. At that point in my career, I wanted to see what I could do. I loved the analytics. I loved the model building. I loved writing. I loved dealing with smart people. It was a dream come true to have that job. Now, it was a nightmare for a while because everybody rejected me. Everybody rejected me. And I could go through this long list. Lehman Brothers rejected me three times. Morgan Stanley let me know they wouldn't give me a job at the time because I had a baby. The one that's my favorite um, is Smith Barney rejected me, and the director of research told me in what was just as wrong an assessment as I could imagine that they weren't going to hire me because they didn't think I would work very hard. Now, I know, Rebecca, you and I know each other. I got a lot of faults. Hard work is not one of them. So years later, when he worked for me, he worked very hard. Uh, no, I, no, I actually fired him. Actually, you fired him. actually, I fired him and I, because he wasn't head, working hard in enough. In my head, in my head, this did not happen. But in my head, when I fired him, I said, "You were wrong about me. Look at this." That's what happened in my head in real life. I just fired him. Um, success is being able to fire someone who talks down to you early on in your career. Yes, it is. So, okay, so so fast forward, you're in these very high level right. roles, and things don't work out. What's going through your mind at the time? I loved those jobs. I know, I know. They don't quite have that reputation all the time because of the financial crises. People don't immediately think have an impact on families. But the families I was dealing with and talking to every day, these these financial advisors were making a difference. So I hated to leave those jobs. But um, in the case of Smith Barney, there was an ethical stand I felt like I needed to take that was more important than my job. And you came to that conclusion how? Through listening to my stomach. Um, So let's rewind. We're now in the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Our financial advisors had sold a product manufactured in another part of Citigroup uh, that was supposed to be low risk. And on the, you know, every analysis I saw over that period of time was, hey, this is low risk, bad market. This goes down about eight cents on the dollar. Let's slap it on the front of the selling document. Tiny print, you can lose all your money. Well, we had a bad market. They go down, not eight cents. Someone went down nearly 100 cents. And so I went to my very brand new boss, with whom I did not have a relationship, um, and advocated partially reimbursing clients. Um, You know what? I say I went to him. He wouldn't see me. Um, I was able to get to see his squad. Mm-hmm. And make the even though I reported directly to him, make the case to his squad, and the squad came back and said no, and and then I did uh, things that like stalking him and standing outside his office and calling him <laughs> repeatedly, and so on, and eventually it went to the board, and the board sided with me, and we partially reimbursed clients, and sometime later I was I was fired. Um, Why you, do you think that was? Oh, if you go up against your boss, you, you get fired. I mean, I think I think that's just a rule of business. We should probably ten commandments of business: go against your boss at the board. You will. You won't lose your job the next day, but you will lose your job. For women and men who are in their careers and they're going through the you know the the meeting with their boss and the boss is saying, "Well, you're not decisive, yeah. and you're not checking off these boxes." Then what? What I think is different today than what we saw going forward, that professional women, professional women, we've got increasing options. 
out there. First of all, we can, the research is clear that starting a conversation around it can be helpful. I call them the courageous conversations. The, do you realize, hey, Jimmy, do you realize that you interrupted Susie 12 times, but Joey not at all? Hey, guys, do we realize that we just promoted Mike because he's ambitious, but we got Joanne a coach to have her smooth that out. Whose job is it to raise that in, in an office? I think it's all of our jobs. I, I don't think, look, if, if my daughter or my son start on day one, those, they can't have that kind of conversation. But you've built political capital, right? And the research shows that it's – that by saying research shows – that you can actually change minds. And I wouldn't do it in the middle of a room with 37 people, but you pull somebody aside or you you talk to your boss about, hey, look, I've been reading a lot about this stuff. And what, you know, I you're asking me to be something I'm not. Mm-hmm. Now, there are going to be companies that are going to be like, forget it, lady. You know, that's just not how we operate. Today, in addition, we can have these conversations. The research shows they work. Women today control 80% of consumer spending control five trillion, not billion, trillion of investable assets, another six trillion with our spouses and partners, and are more than half the workforce. And technology is bringing us the ability to to buy from companies, um, walk into the grocery store, and see the gender makeup of the senior leadership team of companies we're buying from. Done good, see how they're harming or not the the, uh, environment. We can invest in companies that that share our values, um, and again, we're we're more than half the workforce. So, remind me why do we why do we have to act like men when we have all this financial power, we have all this economic power, and we have increasingly the means to use it? That's what I think is different. And this is part of your reason for Elevest. Oh, oh, I mean, my life now. Um, after my career on Wall Street, my my life really is about helping professional women advance. When we do, it's good for our companies. It's good for society. It's good for our families. It's good for the economy. It's good for men. It is good for everyone. So what what I saw with Elevest is that Wall Street, very male, not too surprisingly, does a better job for men than women. And while we in, as women in aggregate have lots of resources, we as women individually do not have as much money as men do. When you say Wall Street does better for men than for women, mm-hmm. are you saying that a woman who goes to a traditional Wall Street bank is going to have a worse off portfolio than a no. man? I'm saying that she will. She won't have one in many cases because she walks in, she sees that the financial advisors are 86% male or on average in their late 50s to early 60s. I saw one was with one company not too long ago, more financial advisors over the age of 80 than under the age of 30. Wow. So she sees a more mature Caucasian gentleman. She is talked to about beating the market, outperforming, picking a winner. So very sports. She watched CNBC and she sees sports analogies all over the place. And the industry symbol is a bull, which is a phallic symbol. <laughs> and so it, when she does engage with this, this is not me saying this. This is the research. She says they talk down to me. They patronize me. By the way, I'm still upset about the financial crisis, she says. Nothing about it feels right to me. We're talking in standard deviation and alpha. I don't know what those things mean, whereas men will invest right through it. She's saying this just doesn't make sense to me. This idea of investing money to make more money, I guess – But what I really want is for you to tell me how much home I can afford, when I can have the second child, can I start my own business, 
can I retire at 90% of my pre-retirement or how much should I have to retire? And can you invest to get me there? It's a really different mindset. And so these numbers are astounding. What I found at Merrill when I was running Merrill is, is males would leave their financial advisor if neither one of them died or left the company or anything at a rate of like 2 to 4% a year, very little. The woman in the year after her husband's death, because he dies sooner, would leave that same financial advisor at a rate of 70%. Wow. Whoa, but it gets worse because I just saw new research that says for other firms it's 80%. Now, besides this just being, ugh, come on, guys, here's the problem. It, this gender investing gap cost women hundreds of thousands, for some of your listeners, millions of dollars over the course of their lives. And if I'm going to go Gloria Steinem on you, let's go. Women will not be fully equal with men until we are financially equal with men. I say it's the best career advice women aren't getting. Do you feel better going in to talk to your boss about a new assignment or, you know, new training or even the raise or to quit your job because he's a jerk or to leave your abusive relationship at home because he's a real jerk if you've got more money in the bank or less? And right now we've got less. So the answer is what? What will LFS do for people? What are you trying to do for women? We spent hundreds of hours, co what I say, co-creating LFS with professional women. With what, you know, not trying to fix them. That's what everybody does. Let's fix the women. You need more financial education. We're trying to fix the underlying capability. Yeah, Wall Street's had plenty of women's initiatives. They've been marketing initiatives. This really tries to get into a woman's mindset. She gives us information all online to date about herself, tells us what she wants to do. We use a very powerful investing algorithm to tell her what she can afford to do and when she can make trade-offs. And then we put together, I think, the most highly customized investment portfolios for each of her goals, where we target getting her to her goal or better in 70% of markets. Really different. And then if she falls off track, we tell her she fell off track and give her advice on what to do to get back on track. Really different, really different from any, anything else that's out there. What's the worst advice you've received over the course of your career? Well, the worst advice I heard was, of course, from my ex-husband. Of course. I mean, of course. To my younger brother, when we were all in our 20s, and my ex-husband, who actually was a Wall Street guy, told my brother Johnny not to worry about investing in his 20s because he just wasn't making that much money. And so if you're not making that much money, you'll make a lot more later, and then you can, you know, you can invest later. Wow. You're like, dude, heard of the power of compounding where, you know, you The earlier money, you start, the better off you are. And you make money on the money you earn, and you make money on the money you earn, and you make money on the money you earn. That's yeah. the opposite of what everybody says. Of course. Of course. <laughs> but if my brother's like, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> the other worst thing I hear, which is really, really my pet peeve, comes from... It comes from a number of personal finance journalists I've seen. And some of it was when I launched Elevest. And it was, it was a little bit of, oh, this isn't going to be successful because other people have tried and they failed. And I'm like, well, that's actually why we should try, person who's writing this. And then they go through and they talk about, you know, what, you know, their view on the whole thing. But they all, a few of them ended with, but, yes, there may be a gender investing gap, but... The real issue is the gender pay gap. And until we fix that as a society, women won't ba da 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 And I read that and thought, that is just like saying, I broke my leg and I broke my arm. 
the real issue is my leg. And until we fix my leg, I'm not doing anything with my arm, right? And the answer is, it's all we should do it all. And that actually, if you run the numbers, investing historically could help make up a good chunk of that gender pay gap. But you should not do, oh, I'm going to show them. Right. I'm going to show them. I, I've got a gender pay gap, so I'm not going to friggin' invest. And then I'm going to have less money. And then they're going to, yeah, they're, then they're going to be sorry. Mm-hmm. And what historically you've then gotten are market-like returns. Historically, the equity market over decades has returned 9%. We'll put that in contrast to bank accounts today are, you know, spitting at zero. Um, a diversified investment portfolio, we think it was more 6%. Those numbers might not seem like that much. I, I don't have to tell you, those are life-changing. Hardest lesson, most valuable lesson that you've learned over the course of your life? I think the most valuable lesson, which is such a simple, straight one, is hard work, hard work, hard work. There just aren't shortcuts. You know this. I've seen you in your career. You know, hard work and success are not always positively correlated every week or even every year. But over time, if you're out there working hard, things will happen for you. There there can be a new opportunity every day. The hardest thing I've had to learn, I, I you know, it's not always a fairy tale ending that, you know, the we, we talked about when I got booted out of Smith Barney and that almost killed me. Um, When I was reorganized out of Merrill Lynch, um, I felt like uh, my world view had been shaken. And they gave me 20 minutes from the time I left the boss's office till when it was on CNBC. And so you say, you know, you just feel like your worldview is play the game and good things will happen, but sometimes they don't. The great news about it, though, is, you know, it was so stark. There was no mourning. There was no nothing. I said, this is not my plan. This is not my path. I'm not supposed to be here. And I sure don't want to be here if this is how they're going to treat me as they show me out the door. And so there was a freedom to it. And so having just been booted out of Smith Barney, then booted out of Merrill, I'm not, you know, forget about karma, religion, whatever, but it was clear to me I was supposed to be on a different path. And that's what led me to founding Ellevest. Sally Krawcheck, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's someone you think we should have on the show, let me know. You can tweet me at Rebecca Jarvis. And of course, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat. And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. It is a big one. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Bancardo, Steve Jones, Erica Scott, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.